Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Your host, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. Tonight, it's part four? Five. Five? Part five of Notebook Nanties. Hey, yo. <laughs> Notebook Nanties, lad. Hey, Yorkshire. Hi. Bye, Eck. Back in the day. Hey, you and I were a lad. Hey. Black pudding. <laughs> Flat caps. Whippets. <laughs> I don't know if that is apropos of nothing. Today it is the fifth and final... Put your tissues away. Final part of Netbook Nanties. In which we will be covering the image. The image of comics. Very good. I like that. Spawn, number one. What Young comics? Blood, number one. <laughs> And Wildcats, number one. Hot. Blisteringly hot. That's why we have to read them digitally. That's, yes. Can't you, can't, you can't, no. You like a hammer. Yeah. Can't touch this. Craps in my pants. And no one wants to. <laughs> so, we will, without further ado, we will move on to the email section of the show, which, by pure coincidence, is talking about the first episode of Netbook Nanties in which Chris Franklin talked about three comics by Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee it's cyclical uh, I'm a big fan of this, you, you know I like things coming full circle, I like it being organised in that way that life isn't okay Okay. Chris says nothing but the cross hatching, which is the title the log line, yeah. the subtitle of his email I liked it <laughs> Hello, Leyland. Hello, Chris. Ah, the 90s. I wasn't surprised by your clinical examination of these titles. You pretty much summed up my estimation of them in hindsight. Moving on to the next email. <laughs> I, too, was wooed back into the spidey titles by McFarlane. After Ron Friends stopped drawing amazing regularly, I lost interest. But the reveal of Ned Leeds as the Hobgoblin after he'd been murdered in a one-shot special rubbed me wrong. But I too came back with Amazing Spider-Man issue 300 and McFarlane's energetic artwork hooked me. I didn't quite know what to make of his Batman over in Detective Comics prior to this, but he was following Alan Davis, so it was a very jarring change. His Spider-Man was more... Ditko-y. Now, I know that comparing McFarlane to Ditko now is blasphemy, but to my young mind back then, he was, as Andy put it, the first to break from the Ramita House style in nearly 25 years. The bigger eyes and the more spidery poses were Ditko-like in a way. Michelini's stories were full of energy and fun. I actually liked Peter and MJ as a couple, the only time anyone really made them work, or even really tried, in my opinion. And yes, McFarlane seemed to go out on his own and redesign MJ, despite her looking Ramita-like in Spectacular and Web of. 
It was interesting to see when the winds changed and suddenly Alex Saviak and Sal Buscema were changing the Mary Janes and adding about 50 more web lines to Spidey's costume to match McFarlane. I would disagree, Chris, that Michelini was the only one to write the marriage well. I think Di Matteis did a good job with it in Spectacular Spider-Man. And I don't think Straczynski did a terrible job with it. Were they still married? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was it, His run ended with the, uh, yes. the magnificence that was One More Day. I like it. There's just no accountability. I, re- I remember them not being together when as soon as his run started. Yeah, they weren't together when it started, but they got back together. Right, They'd been okay. split up in Mackie and Burns' run. Right. Mary Jane was believed to be dead. Okay. And she was let the world think <laughs> that she is dead. And so on and so forth. Chris continues, but adjective-less Spider-Man. Oh, boy, that was the first comic where I truly realised just how important good writer was. It introduced me to the concept of a decompressed storyline. Torment could easily have fit into one issue, but took five. McFarlane was blazing more trails than he realised. His art still has a certain energy to it, and I kind of understand why he became so popular, but now it just does come across as kind of grotesque. Again, as with Andy, the nostalgia is still there, but now I chalk it up to liking bad things when you were a teen, like crappy heavy metal and bad horror films. I still like bad horror films. <laughs> we watch many a bad horror film on the Horror Channel, don't we? Yes. X-Force. I'll admit I jumped on the bandwagon and bought one of each variant. Hey, I was 15. I didn't know any better. I first encountered Liefeld on DC's Hawk and Dove miniseries where his art was wrangled in a bit by Inca Carl Kiesel. I kind of dug his dynamic style, though. If you look at the covers of his early New Mutants, you can see how quickly he became a victim of his own hype and in Spinal Tap fashion turned his style up to 11 to where there was no actual human anatomy left in it, not that there was much to begin with. Besides the horrible art and grandiose story, X-Force number 1 has one more sin against it. Liefeld totally ripped off the opening sequence to New Teen Titans Volume 1, Issue 39. This is the issue where Dick Grayson gives up his Robin identity and Wally West retires as Kid Flash, so I knew it like the back of my hand and called foul the minute I opened my poly bag back in 1991. The Arctic base, the panel progression on page 1, the double page spread are all complete rip-offs of George Perez's far superior layouts and artwork. Liefeld was a huge Titans fan, contributing to Titans fan scenes and APAs before his pro days. He was even listed as a guest at Donna Troy's wedding in the Tales of the Teen Titans issue 50, and would have been drawn into the title like other fans had he not missed the deadline to get his picture to Perez. <laughs> a harbinger of things to come. Liefeld initially developed Youngblood as a Titan spin-off, a Shaft originally being an unused update for Speedy. We'll remember that for later on. X-Men number one. I opted for the Gatevold cover on this one. This one is leaps and bounds above the other two. Lee is a far superior artist and does know how to draw competently, whereas I can't always say that about the others. Well, I can't say it's all about Liefeld. I can forgive his long intros because they have a large cast to introduce. The story is compelling and Clermont did inject a true sense of game-changing danger, essentially saying Magneto is tired of your shit and doing something about it. It would indeed make an excellent film. The treatment of Clermont was criminal, however. I agree with Michael that Lee's art has progressed somewhat. At first I didn't think so, but casting back, I don't recall his work being quite as moody in those days. Even his Punisher War Journal stuff seemed to be more open. I think he's learned to spot his blacks more convincingly to convey atmosphere. That may be the real difference between X-Men 1 and Hush. Great episode, although I can't forgive you for plaguing us once more with the Spice Girls. I'm pretty sure you violated the Geneva Convention by ending your show with that song. Until next time, Chris the Long-Winded A, if there's anything more 90s, 
than wannabe. Which I think, you can like the Spice Girls or not like the Spice Girls, whatever. But it's a perfect slice of pure pop. There is nothing wrong with wannabe. It's got a brilliant bass line. Dun, 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 dun. That's great. I mean, yeah, the singing leads a little to be desired, but, you know, sporty could carry a tune, if nothing else. Anyway, thank you, Chris. Thank you for writing in such a long email that basically said, I agree with you. Those are always the best. Those are always my favourite emails. Chris hosts Supermates with his missus, Cindy. Go and check it out. It's very good. Our next email is from Matt Evans. Carry a big enough gun and no one will notice your itty-bitty little trotters. Hello, lovely Leyland. Hello, Matt. Having now completed the Herculean, but also vastly enjoyable task of listening to every single bloody episode of Hey Kids Comics, I now feel able to drop you a line. I would have done so earlier, but I only started listening relatively recently, so I'd be effectively sending you a message from my present and your past, and you'd receive it in your present and my future, and the whole thing would just involve far too much temporal confusion, and we are easily confused. We are. We are so easily confused, we cannot understand how X-Force became that popular. (laughs) Your podcast is curiously tailor-made for me. Well, we had you in mind <laughs> when we, we came up with that. That's a true story. As a northern English father in the orbit of 40 with three decades plus of comics immersion sloshing around in my head, I tend to relate massively to Andrew's experiences and perspective. However, as a rabid fan of Grant Morrison and Frank Quitley, to me the most perfect purring of writer and artist since Clermont and Byrne, I share a lot of Michael's affinities. I would insert provide feedback here about the excellent Seven Soldiers episode, but that's one of the few Morrison books I've not read, so I have little to say apart from the fact that you have definitely bumped this series, or series of series, up my chest-high reading list a few places. It's remarkably fortuitous that I would get up to date as you hit the first Bailey purloined nothing but the 90s episode. I don't know if every comics fan does have a break from the medium, but I certainly did, and these issues were around the start of it. I may dally with others, but deep in the darkest depths of my soul, I am at heart an X-Men guy. The uncanny X-Men title went through an extremely long directionless period after Fall of the Mutants, issue 225 through 227. The X-Men ended up in Australia, sort of split up, sort of drifted apart, and didn't really reconvene properly until the 270s. There were at least a couple of years of really weird, disparate, floundering X-Men stories, many of them solo adventures in which the team effectively didn't exist. With the benefit of hindsight, I appreciate how alarmingly bold this was of Clermont, but at the time it was frustrating. The coming of Jim Lee, the reassembling of the team and the relaunch were, I must admit, incredibly exciting. His heart was explosive and dynamic and sharp and seemed like a whole new era of greatness had begun. However, whilst the objectiveless X-Men started well within ten issues, I was sick of it. It all became extremely flashy and violent, but lacked heart and depth and personality. It effectively became X-Force, only with less risible art. Much as I recognise Lee's skill, I find his work pretty unappealing now. Given the lack of fanfare regarding Clermont's departure, it failed to register at the time that he was out after issue three, but with hindsight it makes perfect sense that my interest in the book dwindled dramatically after that. And with the passing of my interest in the X-Men went my passion for Marvel and comics in general. A couple of years later I'd crawl my way back, but reborn as a DC reader, something which would have been unthinkable to my younger DC-hating Marvel zombie self. I didn't buy another Marvel comic until the first issue of Morrison's new X-Men. As for X-Force, I remember it seeming vaguely exciting at the time, but again it came after a period in which New Mutants had been moribund, indeed embarrassingly bad for quite a while. That's not to suggest that Liffield wasn't just as embarrassingly bad, but at least he was new, loud and wildly different to what had come before, at least for a while. His novelty value deflected attention from his extreme crappiness. 
On a factual note, Warpath is indeed the brother of Thunderbird from Giant Size X-Men. He was for a while called Thunderbird, fought the X-Men, seeking revenge for his brother's death, joined the Helians, the new mutant semi-evil counterparts, and eventually hooked up with the X-Men, even appearing in this year's Days of Future Past. One more note, re-legends. Many of your recent correspondents have been very harsh towards Justice League Detroit. Well, this is not the greatest period of League history, it certainly has its charms, not least of which is the central role it gave to the Martian Manhunter, my favourite character of all time. This League may not exactly be the Big Seven, but there's lots of story potential in the world's premier super team, reduced to a bunch of B and C listers hanging out in a shabby townhouse in the midst of urban decay. Just imagine the Avengers setting up a Mansfield branch. <laughs> Actually, I would read that comment. Well, I think that's more than enough waffle. In conclusion, I will pause only to shamelessly plug my comics blog, Ultron Is My Elvis, and apologise for not writing sooner. Thanks for the many hours of thoroughly delightful geeky chat. All the best, Matt. You're very welcome, Matt. And Ultron Is My Elvis was very, very good. I checked out a number of those pages. All very interesting. And you should do the same, lovely listener. Our next email is from Seamus Highland. Hello, Leylands. Ongoing series and new readership. I just wanted to respond to the emails in your Tied to the 90s podcast, as I think they spoke to the heart of the dwindling comics readership issue. First off, let me say I love your show, and this blatant flattery is an attempt to get you on side, for my opinion. <laughs> you don't have to do that, Seamus. We're, we're fine with uh, diverse opinions. Yes. I think. I'm just going to use Peter Parker as my sole reference point in the encased in amber debate, so as to try and keep focus. There seems to be two main bones of contention from comic fans. If someone has just seen The Amazing Spider-Man 2 and decide they want to check out a comic, what do they get? Their frame of reference for Peter is a school-college-age kid. What they get is a 29-ish year-old who happens to own his own high-tech company. If you send them to the original source material, the Stan and Steve stuff, which I love, it's horribly dated. How many times did Peter struggle to get in touch with Aunt May or a doctor? To an average 12-year-old with an almost surgical attachment to mobile phones, they have no conception of what it was like to have to wait in for a phone call, or even for a phone to be available if you didn't have the correct change. Comics tend to be very self-referencing. I never noticed how much until my wife decided she was going to start reading Loci, thanks to Tom Hiddleston. Every two pages she was turning to me going, who's that, or what's that referencing? It's really surprised me how much knowledge of the Marvel U is required to understand modern comics. This becomes a frustrating experience for new readers. For the older comics fans like me, there comes a point where the main character is stuck in a perpetual adolescence for every step forward. Going to college, getting married, he takes a step backward. Quitting graduate school, deals with the devil. The repetition of story plots and the constant resetting of life's major milestones. Married, reset, death of mother, figure, reset. Lee Ditko's Spider-Man is dated, yeah. but I don't think that hurts it. But that's just my opinion. I still think the stories, the emotional core of the stories still hold up. And I think if kids got into that at, what, eight years of age, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of age, like you did, I think they'd still read them and still enjoy them. I think the lack of mobile phones wouldn't affect them. Yeah. I think most kids are probably smart enough to realise they were actually written in the 60s. And this goes to my whole feeling that you could just encase Spider-Man as issue 1 to 50 and leave that as a, a complete entity, couldn't you? Yeah. But at the same time, I agree with what you're saying about books currently being so enmeshed in their own continuity. Mm. And I don't think the new 52's helped really in that matter, has it? It's less than Marvel. 
you think? Marvel has a rich history, but that's also its hindrance for new readers. Yeah, because I get what he's saying about Amazing Spider-Man. If you come out of Amazing Spider-Man 2 going, Spider-Man's cool, and you go and buy Amazing Spider-Man, the comic book, you've not got a character that that you've just seen on screen. Yeah. Which was a problem they had when the first X-Men movie came about, which is where Grant Morrison's new X-Men came from. Yeah. Basically, he was charged with putting the X-Men that you saw in the movie theatres in a comic. Hmm. So, yeah, you didn't have to be blatant flatterers to get us on side with your opinion. And yeah. We actually agree with a lot of that, don't we? I'm still of the opinion where I don't really like people who watch a film and then get into comics. Why? It's just, I'm biased because of it. But The people who laughed at me for reading comics are now the first in line to go and watch the comic movies. But the comic movies are currently trendy. See, I discovered that, I discovered comics through Adam West. The people who are watching the movies are affecting the comics. Movies are a big have a big the movies have a big effect on comics. It's the same with TV shows. Take mm. Arrow and Green Arrow. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. You can go and watch Captain America yeah. or Captain America the Winter Soldier or Thor or Iron Man and you don't have to have seen 30 years worth of movies. You don't for some comics. No, not all of them. But I don't think Seamus is saying all of them. Yeah. But it's like, if, if you... Here's the thing. You you just got Captain America the Winter Soldier on Blu-ray. Right. You've watched it, thoroughly enjoyed it because it is magnificent. Yeah. And then you go, right, I want to read Captain America the comic book. And you pick up Captain America the comic book and Steve Rogers is an old man. Right. It's it. You can understand the comic book companies being in a very difficult position here. I don't envy them. Yeah. Because if you've just watched Captain America and then you go and buy a Captain America comic and it's not Steve Rogers, mm. on the one hand, you're failing those people who've just watched the film. But, but on, on the, the other... Hand, you can't change it, otherwise you'll be feeling... Fa- on the other, the you're failing is. the comics readers. But yeah. the movie money is a significantly more chunk of... a significantly higher chunk of change than comic book money. Yeah. So which audience do you want to please? I still think we should please the comic audience. You think? Yes. What, and the other people should catch up? I think the, the, the comic audience are a lot more faithful than the movie audiences. Yeah, but there's a part of us as comics readers who are buried in this continuity and know the minutiae yeah. of 20, 30, 40, 50 years worth of comics book stories. And if comics are going to survive they do have to appeal to the newer readership. And if that newer readership is brought in by the films, there's nothing necessarily wrong with a Guardians of the Galaxy comic that mirrors the film. Yeah. Is my thinking. And I think that's fine as long as they don't do what, say, DC in particular are doing, where they're completely changing everything to fit the movies. So you think the new 52 and Dan DiDio's edict to bring back Barry Allen and Hal Jordan... Um, well, Oliver Queen was back at that point, but whatever. Mm. To bring back all the archetypical versions of the characters was purely motivated by DC wanting to make movies. It's everyone. It's every, every comics company are doing it. They're all catering to the movies, uh, the TV shows, and their audiences. Every single company is doing that. But they're not doing a very good job of it, then, if you just watch Captain America 2 and come out and bought a Captain America comic that does not have Steve Rogers in it. I'm not debating yeah. the quality of the Captain America comic at the moment. Right. Because, you know, I have no I have no issues with um, the Falcon being Captain America at all. Yeah. But for the purposes of this argument, I am going to take the contrary position. Okay. And say that 
anyone who's just watched Captain America 2, and Captain America 2 is just an example, I could have just easily used Iron Man 3, right. and gone out and bought a comic, thinking, oh, I'll get into this. Yeah. What, what do you suggest to them at the minute? If you give them Castaway in Dimension Z, which does have Steve Rogers in it, right. that is so far removed from what they've just watched in Captain America 2. Yes. Which was essentially a 70s political thriller. I don't th- think that there's... Actually, I encouraged it, uh, actually, for them to stick to, say, the movies. Take the Walking Dead TV show, for instance. Mm-hmm. You can't watch the Walking Dead TV show and then kind of really get read it monthly. But if you've been reading it monthly from the beginning or for a long time and you know like all the characters in the backstory about the comics, what's happening now is the, the comics are being changed to affect the TV show with, say, the introduction of Daryl Dixon and the, the big thing recently with he might be gay. The TV show and the audience and the fan base are affecting the comics and the completely different fan base of the comics readers. See... Again, I, I think comic readers and movie goers or TV show fans who read comics are two completely different fan bases. Do you? Yes. So the fact that The Walking Dead has been in the upper echelons of the graphic novel sales market since the TV show started, do you think that's people who would be inclined to be reading comics anyway? Or do you think that is people who have watched The Walking Dead and have gone and bought The Walking Dead graphic novels and have carried on reading them, but they may not be reading any other comics? Is it the Sandman effect? Well, what's, what has increased in sales? Is it the graphic novel sales or is it the actual comics? The sales? graphic novel sales. Well, that, there you go, then. The graphic novels have not been out of the top ten yeah. since the series started. And you go into any comic book store or bookstore and there's an entire shelf or two devoted exactly. to The Walking Dead. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that TV audience coming buying those comics? If they accept that the comic yeah. is telling a completely different story to the TV show, the backstories of pretty much all of the characters in the comic are not the same as the TV show. No. I don't I don't have a problem with it. My my thinking is you can embrace the history of your character. Yeah. While still telling good stories that people will latch on to. Now having come out of seeing Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is what Seamus's question was, what Spider-Man boot do you currently give them? Amazing Spider-Man is 21 and runs his own company, so there is nothing in that. Yeah. That relates to the film you've just watched. Ultimate Spider-Man is now all about Miles Morales. Yeah. So there is nothing in that that relates to the film you've just watched. So is Marvel, therefore, doing a disservice to people by not publishing a comic that reflects the movies? Bearing in mind that Marvel have no say over what happens in the Spider-Man movies. And I think that's your key element. Marvel don't care if the Spider-Man movie viewers become Spider-Man comics readers. Because they don't make the Spider-Man movies, they have no say what goes on in those movies, therefore they are not inclined to tie their comics into that film. Yeah. The only thing they really did was give Amazing Spider-Man another than new number one. Mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy, however, is a Marvel movie, made by Marvel. The money goes to Marvel. If they're people who saw Guardians of the Galaxy go and buy a Guardians of the Galaxy comic, that money comes to Marvel. Yeah. Therefore, it makes more sense, from a sales marketing point of view, for Guardians of the Galaxy comics to match Guardians of the Galaxy the movie. But they don't. I don't, well, that's right. I've not read the Guardians of the Galaxy Guardians comic of the Galaxy recently. is completely different at the moment. Is it? Yeah. I've not In read fact, it, so I don't the, know. Uh, the, 
I think I read somewhere the only reason it is different is because Robert Downey Jr. is not Tony Stark anymore. And Tony Stark is the main character in the Guardians at the moment. Is he? It's based on the Abnett and Lannan stuff. So which could... is a miniseries. No, I think that they did an ongoing that ran yeah. for 20 or 30 odd years. Right. Years. <laughs> issues. Yeah. But that's that's my... I, my introduction to Spider-Man was the 60s TV show. And then I went out and bought the comics. Yeah. But you can argue a case that I went out and bought the comics that did kind of reflect that TV show. Yeah. I was buying the Marvel Tales reprints that were reprinting Lee and Ditko. Yeah. Which essentially were that cartoon. I mean, maybe it was Mother Amita stuff, but the principle... I could go out and buy a comic that didn't somewhere relate yeah. to what I saw. Not so much with the 70s TV show, mm. which probably why the 70s Spider-Man TV show did not lead to a bump in readership of the comics. Same with the Hulk TV show. Yeah. In both those instances, the comics readership and the TV readership never the twain shall meet. Mm. But the Batman TV show of the 60s led to an increase in sales of the comics. Yeah. And DC, or national periodicals as they were at the time, made the comics more like the TV show. So, had Marvel made the Hulk comic in 1979 the same as the TV show, do you think it would have sold more? Maybe. You think? Yeah. So, what you're saying there is that Marvel did the right thing by not changing the comic to reflect the television show. Because in the grand scheme of things, the television show ran for five years. Yeah. The Hulk comic has been an ongoing title for, what, 70 years now? 60 years? Hmm. So... That's the best thing for movies to do, is to tell a different story. But they're not doing that. Because... Comic readers like go and watching a film where they say, oh, they've taken that from that story, or oh, that's from that story, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't read the stories, it's just one thing. Yeah. And if that's completely different to the comics, then that's good, because the, the movie watchers who don't read comics have their own thing. They have their own Captain America. But they this, have their own this was brought home in Captain America The Winter Soldier, wasn't it? We were all... Uh, that was a damp squib. We knew who The Winter Soldier was. Yeah. But we are a very small percentage of the audience that saw that film. How many people saw that film had no clue Bucky Barnes was the Winter Soldier? Yeah. They've only seen the first Captain America movie. That was a reveal to them. That was a big reveal. Yeah. Because they don't make a point of signposting it terribly much in the advertising. Mm. So, mm, I don't know. Sometimes there's a part of me that thinks I wish they wouldn't do that in the films. I wish they'd just tell a completely different story. Yeah. Rather than stealing bits from the comics. Anyway. So we can take out of this argument is I don't like audiences. Anyway, Seamus's email <laughs> led us down a path of least resistance. So we're going to plug a show, Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast hosted by me, Sean Engel, and Paul Spataro. You said last week I should plug myself more. Okay. There you go, I'm plugging myself more. So after this advert for that really rather excellent show, Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast by Paul Spataro, Sean Engel, and myself, we will be back You're to You're doing an actual other podcast? The 90, yeah, yeah, yeah. Five o'clock in the morning, dude. It's an ongoing thing now. It's it's apparently an ongoing thing, yeah. <laughs> Three podcasts. Yeah. Two not enough. Yeah, no. No. I have no life. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute. Here at Quarks, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. For Starfleet, 
one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. We've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. Damage report. Landing stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Leyland. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. With the huge success of Spider-Man, X-Force and X-Men, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane and Rob Liffield could do no wrong with sales of nearly 11 million copies between them. Still, the idea that they could have made even more money had they but owned the characters was irking to Liefeld and McFarlane. Liefeld in particular had a standing offer to produce an independent comic for Malibu Comics, a comic that he himself would own the rights to. He designed a number of characters and came up with a plot and a title. Stop me if you think you've heard this one before. A team of rebel mutants from the future come to destroy their past. Hmm. This boot would be called The Executioners. Hmm. Perhaps this would have been allowed to slide if the character designs hadn't bore a strong resemblance to various members of X-Force. As it was, Bob Harras, the X-Men editor, warned Liefeld that if he went ahead with this, Marvel's lawyers would take an interest. Liefeld backed down, but the idea of a creator-owned project stuck with him. Elsewhere, McFarlane was also running into problems. Under editor Jim Salakrup, Todd McFarlane had turned the Spider-Man comic into a grim, violent series with stories about child abuse, drug addiction and police corruption. But Salakrup, satisfied with the sales figures, remained hands-off. However, when new editor Danny Fingeroff took over, McFarlane suddenly found himself under a microscope. And when the editor dirged to edit his prose and tell McFarlane what he could and couldn't do, the petulant man-child spat his dummy out and quit the book. He also started talking about self-publishing, remembering what Liefeld had told him about his offer from Malibu. But McFarlane thought bigger. What if he could get a number of big names to come with them? With Liefeld whispering the same thoughts into the ears of artist Jim Valentino, Eric Larson, who was also growing disenfranchised with his artist gig on Amazing Spider-Man, calling writers at the time hackneyed and repetitive in a letter to Comic Buyer's Guide published under the banner Name Withheld. If Todd and Rob quit, Larson would be joining them. However, one piece of the puzzle still remained to be placed. McFarlane was concerned that Marvel wouldn't be concerned if Liffield and McFarlane quit. McFarlane's own assessment of the situation that Marvel wouldn't be that bothered, feeling that Marvel felt that Liffield was an idiot and McFarlane was an asshole, and both could easily be replaced. However, Jim Lee would be another matter entirely. The problem was, Jim Lee had no issues with being a company man. He got on well with his editor, Bob Harass. He enjoyed working on X-Men, and the security of a regular paycheck was nice for a man who had a pregnant wife at home. However, when Lee was asked to fly to a Sotheby's auction of his own art, he was told the company would not cover his wife's urfer. Lee, having just sold 8 million copies of a single comic, started to question his loyalty. With artist Mark Silvestri joining in, the Marvel exodus was all but set. That they were leaving wasn't really a big concern to Marvel. No independent comic artist has ever sold numbers that could do anything to us, editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco reportedly stated. What bothered many of the talent at Marvel was not that they were leaving, but how they left. 
Liefeld and Lee both made noises about working for both companies, but numerous writers, including Fabian Nietzsche, believed that this was just that noise, to delay Marvel being able to select an artist in time to get the comics out on schedule. Nietzsche felt Liefeld was deliberately sabotaging people he'd worked with for personal gain, a move that he felt was mean-spirited and hypocritical. The question, however, still remained. Would DeFalco be proven right, or would Image Comics prove that Marvel and DC were no longer necessary? Image Comics launched in a flurry of publicity with Youngblood in April of 1981. It's a flip book with two covers, both of which are typically Liefeldian drawings of muscular men and women with long legs and spectacular bosoms. What do you think of that cover, Michael? Uh, it's, it's a Liefeld cover. Hmm. Is the best description. Yeah, the first story features the Youngblood away team of Brahma, Riptide, Photon, Psy Fire, Sentinel and Cougar being sent in by shady government operatives who denies their existence to stop Hassan Kusain, <laughs> who has done some evil stuff in Cairo and Israel. Lots of shouting and fighting occurs until Psy Fire locates Hussein, sorry, Kusain and makes his head blow up Scanners style. This is reported in the newspapers as a suicide. It didn't seem to have a title, but Liffield did the plot, pencils and inks, and was the creator, and Hank Canals dialogued it. Now, before we get into this, we're not going to criticise the art. I have made an editorial edict. Right. We went to town on Liffield's art in part one, and this time I think it would just be too easy a target. All right. Let's be honest, there is nothing on that cover that you can't take the piss out of. So if you can't take the piss out of it, can I? <laughs> I do not speak for you, do I not? Yeah. <laughs> All right, you can go for your life, or I'm just going to let it go. Liffield's art is what it is. I do want to know why everyone on page one has their eyes closed. Is that so they don't have to look at Liffield's art? No, what it was, when they took the photo, they all blinked. <laughs> Except Cougar, who's not only blinking, but going, oh, he's yawning. <laughs> he has it's like they chose the... You know when you take a series of photos to pick the best one? They picked the worst possible one. But then it gets even worse once you've got past that little introduction to who all the characters are. The first page of the comic, everyone's asleep. <laughs> yeah. The last guy's yawning. This is a common thread throughout this book. Everyone's asleep. Well, the people making it were asleep. <laughs> asleep at the wheel. Page one was also quite confusing. I've heard tell of people who say they can't read comics. Strange people, unusual people. I, I can't relate to them because they don't understand the panel progression. But I've got to be brutally honest, this is one of the first times I've had to agree with that criticism was this to be read across or down? I read it across. Which caption followed on from the other caption? Because they don't lead into each other whichever way you read them. And I, I read this first page three or four times to try and figure out which order this had to happen in. I mean, it may have just been that I was completely blindsided by the subtle political commentary that was Hassan Kassane. <laughs> yeah. Is that subtle political commentary, or is it neither? I think it's Liffield political commentary. <laughs> uh, latitude is spelt wrong on page two. And in addition to this, the font size for the lettering changes... The font size, sorry, changes size within the same caption boxes. Yeah. See, Rob, this is why you do need an editor. 
There's not really a lot to say about the double pace spread. I mean, the, the guy in the middle looks alright. If we can't take the mick out of it, there's not really much we can say. Oh, because it is eminently piss-takeable. Yeah. But you can feel free to, to do what you want. I mean, I'm just... There's nothing about the art in this that we didn't say in X-Force 1. Yeah. So to remove redundancy, I'm just going to say it's exactly the same as Liffield's normal art, isn't it? Mm. It's proportionally out to lunch. Yeah. The perspective is completely wrong. People's thighs change size on the same guy. Yeah. Frequently. It's the same as it ever was. Not terribly subtle dig at Marvel on the newspaper cover. Pow, smash, kaplash, Marvel comics, maybe head. This is not so subtle dig at Marvel. This fight scene just felt like a replay of, um, my God, look at that guy's mouth. Yeah, I feel that. Blimey, he's, that's a wormhole, clearly. <laughs> he's, um, he's just a basking shark. Yeah, he is a basking shark, that's absolutely true. Uh, the fight goes on forever yeah, in this first story. Issue. It's pretty much a retread of X-Force 1, isn't it? Yeah. You know, lots of stuff happens. Very little of it is interesting. Um, US Today, I presume, is, a, is um, a play on USA Today, which is the, the newspaper Martin McFly reads in Back to the Future 2. It's <laughs> the extent of my knowledge of USA Today. I like how the picture of uh, Saddam... I'm not, I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> I, I, you know, I like how the picture of Saddam on the newspaper is him asleep. <laughs> Everyone's asleep in this comic. Every if single they, person. At least if they did a commentary on Gaddafi, they, they could have just drawn him asleep and it would have looked like Gaddafi. Yeah, I suppose so. There's a character called Sci-Fire who... He makes reference to being paid for what he does. And then on the very next surge, he says, I enjoy this, I do it for free. So, is he being paid or is he not being paid? Uh, you can enjoy something and would say you'd do it for free as long as you didn't get paid. Mm, all right. This kind of stuff I'll do for free. Yeah. Not I'd do for free. I guess, If yeah. he said I'd do it for free, that would imply, yes, I'm being paid, but I enjoy making people's heads blow up. Yeah. Well, wouldn't you? I would thoroughly enjoy if that. If you yeah. could blow up the head of dictators. I'd get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. That would, that would be uh, pretty, pretty awesome. Not terribly easy to read and painful to look at because of the girish colour scheme. This simplistic attempt to embed ridiculously clad super types into a real world issue is quite frankly insulting to the intelligence. I'm dumb of having read this, <laughs> I think is the phrase. There is nothing to this tale of government intervention into another country's problems other than pure wish fulfilment. Liefeld is trying to say something profound and seems to think that by aping Frank Miller, that will accomplish this goal. But this amateurish collection of pin-ups terrible macho dialogue and relentless action in lieu of character is simply painful X-Force was a masterpiece of sequential <laughs> storytelling compared to this I like to think I would have disliked this tripe when I was 12 yeah. let alone at 20 at 42 I think it's utter shit. <laughs> this was Image's flagship book yeah. What did you think of that first story in this I, illustrious first collector's item issue? I had a great sigh of relief when I I, I didn't have to read it anymore. And, <laughs> yeah. Didn't you say pretty much the same thing about X-Force? All but one of these issues, I felt grateful for that last page. Never have you been so relieved to get to the end of a comic. Yeah. Never have you wanted to use a comic for toilet paper. Yeah, yeah, I genuinely had to force myself to read them. Do you know what, though? All things considered, I didn't think this was as purely bad 
as Web of Spider-Man. Yeah. There's a certain trashiness to it that is appealing in that crappy horror channel movie kind of way. That whilst you're reading it, you know it's bad. Yeah. You know that it's making you stupider. <laughs> You know that looking at it is hurting your eyes and giving you a headache. Yeah. Yet at the same time, it's compelling in its pure awfulness. So in a ranking... <laughs> I wanted to find another panel to take the piss out of you. In a ranking situation, I would rate this higher than Web of Spider-Man 100. Okay. I mean, we're not ranking them. Yeah. But if I were... I mean, you know... It was just horrible. I didn't know what to do, though. Yeah, I do mean... I, do I force myself to not look at the pictures and read the dialogue? But the dialogue was so bad, I didn't want to read it, so I had to look at the pictures. And saying this is better than Web of 100 is like saying drinking diarrhea is better than drinking puke. <laughs> I mean... At least one of them goes in your neither mouth. Neither of them were particularly pleasant. The second story focuses on the Youngblood home team of Bedrock Combat... Chapel, Vogue, Striker Pose, Die Hard, and Shaft! Uh. <laughs> Shaft is out shopping with his girlfriend when a sniper takes a pot shot at him. He kills him with a pen and he's called back to HQ. <laughs> kills him with a pen. Uh, the girlfriend simpers. Bedrock is with his mum who simpers and Chapel has bedded a young woman who he is a misogynist to Die Hard wakes up in a box other members of the team are shown but they're boring so we'll cut to the headquarters meeting two members of The Four have escaped despite this they still call them The Four one of the team feels the need to point out that two of The Four are still locked up despite it being stated that two of The Four have escaped (laughs) these two release the other two that's why they're called the four. Oh, you know, that went right over my head. Young blood move into action. The end. <laughs> that's it, isn't it? I know. That is... That's what happens in this comic. Shaft <laughs> has magnificent hair. How does your hair grow? Like, it's growing backwards... Apart from right on his hairline, where it's growing forward in lovely little curls. Whose hair grows like that? Other than Harry Osborn. But his girlfriend does the same. But his girlfriend, my God, his girlfriend is scurry. His <laughs> girlfriend looks like an auton dummy. Yeah. Eee, doesn't she? Plastic face, plastic teeth, plastic hair, plastic eyes. That is the smile of someone who eats babies. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Oh, the one those legs. Yes. Okay, we said we wouldn't do this. The baggy baggy pants, that's all they are. Right, baggy that, that's not a bone sticking out of his leg. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> oh, and it's not in his crotch either, because his crotchal area is completely flat. And very, very tight. Yeah, as like, there's nothing there. Like, all of Liffield's men had no genitalia. That's why they were grimacing all the time. <laughs> they had literally no balls. Yeah. You know, we said we wouldn't do that. When stopping the man who shoplifts as a distraction for the sniper, Shaft says, "'Tis the season for giving, not taking!" Which is macho dialogue at its finest, but also implies that it's Christmas. Yeah. This is not referred to anywhere else in the comic. Macho no, dialogue doesn't need to There are sense. no Christmas trees in the mall. 
which is where they are. Yeah. There is no indication that they're at Christmas shopping. That being said, I do love Shaft, her, in panel two. Every time I turn the page, her just gets more and more beguiling. Yeah. Oh. That's, a lot of, that's a lot of David Finch, actually. Da- no, David Finch at his most mediocre is better than that. that no, that face, though, in that panel. You know that? That's very David Finch. Although the, the sniper's line of dialogue where he says, Ha-ha, c- uh, pay attention to that innocent man. <laughs> that's it, Shaft. Beat the tar out of the innocent, harmless boy who I've just used as bait <laughs> to kill you. So he's not that innocent then, is he? <laughs> Don't pay any attention to the real threat above you. Got you pinned now. So... What, what was the... B- b- no arrows. Ah, no arrows. Well, he's supposed to be Green Arrow, isn't he? Or he was supposed to be Speedy. Right. He was created as a Speedy analogue. This sniper is the worst sniper ever. I mean, the whole plot, as I understand it, was to have the shoplifter distract Shaft so Sniperman could take his shot, right? Yeah. It isn't just dumb luck that the sniper's there when this shoplifting happens, is it? Or is it? I thought it was set up. My reading of it was it was set up. And yet he has ample time, due to the distraction, to shoot Shaft right through the Buffon herdo. And yet he just stands there monologuing. Yeah. All the way through the scene. He then even wastes more time as Shaft turns, looks, poses, finds a pen, throws it, nails Sniper Man, who monologues some more as he falls to his death. I, I didn't get how far away he was, though. No, well, that's someone the... points out the Sniper to him, yeah. and then he falls, and then suddenly Shaft just walks up to him. You're, you're not given any sense of scale. No. Is the Sniper on the aisle above him? In which case, how many tiers is this mole? In which case, why do you need a Sniper? Yeah, why not just shoot him? No, the, there is no sense of perspective given to the words and the wifes of where everybody is. My favourite bit of this, when he falls to his death, not only does he monologue, he does an acrobatic act, (laughs) because he falls completely differently from panel to panel. He falls backwards off it, but then... Then does a somersault (laughs) over, but it's completely different position-wise from what he was in the panel where he was falling. Yeah. I mean, it's like the guy has no attention span. He doesn't remember what he drew in the panel just before this one. And would it have killed him to go, oh, let's just have a look? <laughs> editors are for that, and we've no editors no, on this book. Yeah, and it shows, doesn't it? There was an interesting set piece to be had here. I'm not saying killing the guy with a pen wouldn't have been cool. Yeah. Like you said, there's, it's just completely botched in execution. You don't know where the sniper is, you don't know how far away he is. So you don't know that him throwing that pen was really cool. It could have been as simple as he's sat close to me as you are. So me throwing a pen at you isn't really that impressive, is it? It's not really demonstrating my keen archery skills. But how are we supposed to know this guy's an archer? Because he says, no arrows! Ah, Gurgle! And then he falls into um, a fountain in the middle of the mall... And then just signs autographs. He's very definitely dead. But there's newspaper reporters, though. Yeah, and they say they were following him. Why? It makes sense, actually. Does it? Really? Think about it. How many journalists go out there following celebrities just to take naked pictures of them? So you're basically saying, yeah, but it's not just a photographer following him. There is a cameraman and a news journalist sticking a microphone (laughs) in his face. Where did they come from? Maybe a good journalist 
eats with his microphone and sleeps with his microphone. <laughs> a good reporter doesn't get great stories. A good reporter makes them great. Maybe the reporters hired the sniper. But just so we had a story. Yeah. You know, that's just about as plausible as everything else <laughs> in this entire comic. This one did actually leave a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth simply because its portrayal of women was appallingly bad. Every single one of them without fail is there to look pretty. Well, as pretty as they can. Cook, clean, or be a sex object. Yeah. Even the members of the team are there to argue and be awkward. It's like, did, was this how Liffield saw women? Could be. Why is that guy's thigh as long as he's like... I said we weren't going to do wouldn't, this. Wouldn't, no, no, you're <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah, fish in a bottle. I, I, I did quite like that. the bit with um, what's his face's mum, the thing's mum. Yeah, for once we're better phrase. Yeah, so he, he's eating that green goo. Yeah, and she and he says, "Oh, got to run." She said, "Drink your milk. Drink your milk. Drink your milk. Don't be late." Why is his mum clearly only thirteen? <laughs> How did his mum get him out? I, why do we be Was he born like that? I mean, it's nice he's very accepting of his lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with starting your story in media res. But I don't get the impression he's even thought about a backstory. I don't know, why, why does not Deadpool live in a Lego brick <laughs> doorway? Not Deadpool. Yeah, he is, he is totally Deadpool. Yeah, he just sits there going, I am needed. Well, it saves them coming up with a backstory for it. I guess, but it looks like it's made out of Lego. It's just brightly coloured blocks. It, it looks like when you get an action figure out of polystyrene. Yeah. It's like he, sit, he gets back into his box every night, so he's minting. He's in the collector's in, He's in the collector's love. <laughs> yeah, and he just comes out whenever he needs to. Yeah. Uh, when HQ calls the team, did you notice this? Each member of the team is given a time that they were called. And they wait a good ten or more minutes between each call. They call not Deadpool at 12.45. They call the other guy who's shagging the woman for no reason whatsoever at il- at one eleven. They call Bedrock at 12.32. Why, why the big gap between calling everybody? Can't they just call them all at the same time? And then Chapel, when he sat in bed, has he got shorts on there or not? Because it looks like there's a short there on that leg, but it looks like he's naked on the other leg. Maybe he's wearing a bandage. It's not a very good bandage. It's not very tight. Um, but the, the worst one was Vogue. Vogue makes the team wait five hours yeah. for her to show up. And the team just do that. They just hang around for five hours because they have got nothing better to do. It's a good job the crime that they called them in for wasn't important, <laughs> wasn't it? It's a good job it wasn't a time-sensitive crime. It's a good job the four just decided to wait five hours before they brought the other two members of the team out. If indeed, that is the same call. Because when they get there, the woman at the console, who we don't know, says, request for assistance just coming in. So what was the call from five hours ago about? Um, Is this the same call? As it took five years to come in at subspace? (laughs) I did not understand this at all. Maybe it was a different one, but someone's cat was up a tree, so they all forgot about it. <laughs> so basically what you're saying, they didn't hang around for five hours. They went and did the original yeah, mission, yeah. and then they've come back and got another call. The, the mission was to help with the Saddam Hussein <laughs> assassination attempts, and then they came back from it. Oh, alright, okay, fair enough. I, I don't know, oh. because... I, I... I've said we're not going to pick on the art, but I am going to make an exception. 
Because, right. by God, the panel word Die Hard flies into Punch Generic Bad Guy number four is worthy of a mention. Not only has he broken his spine, <laughs> but he's drawn his crotch as if to say, look here, this is giving him a woody. <laughs> look at it. I'm not making that up. When you're looking at that panel, first of all, you're marvelling at the fact that he's able to get into that position without breaking his back. Right. But all right, maybe he's very limber. But why are the why are the lines pointing towards his area? Why does he think that's what we want? We're looking at that panel. Why does he think that's what we want to look at, other than his healthy man boobs, which he has? Maybe he's wearing Levi's. Well, no, he's not. They're far too... You can't get your legs back up there in jeans, dude. <laughs> I, I didn't understand why he drew attention to the guy's crotch. I didn't... I did not get that at all. And I was wondering if you understood it. No. And then the issue finishes. Very, very abruptly. Very, very abruptly. I, d- I do like the advert it ends on, though. Join <laughs> the Rob Liefeld fan club. I would. Up to the minute news on what he's doing while not releasing his comics, by all oh, accounts. It's taking a dump. <laughs> Well, Kevin Smith, fan club like this. Kevin Smith used to tell us when he was taking a dump, didn't he? For all of our piffiness, this second story was actually better than the first. Yeah, but that's like saying that vomit is better than diarrhea. Yeah. yeah, some of the mysteries that were set up were actually those of a competent writer. Yeah. Um, who tried to kill Shaft. That's interesting. That could be a nice setup for the future. It's still badly put together. And the script makes very little sense, but it makes more little sense than the last story did. Yeah. So I'll give it that. I'll give it a, a moderate thumbs up for at least being mildly incoherent instead of incredibly incoherent. <laughs> at least the last one was just a fight scene, though. Yeah. Well, all right, fair enough. There's an awful lot of characters in this, which I think you complained about when you were reading it this afternoon. It's just introduce a new character, introduce a new character, introduce a new no, character. That was, that was the Jim Lee one. Oh, was that the Jim Lee one? Yeah. All right. I mean, there are, there's some trading cards that give backstory on the characters, but one would have thought that would have been more useful, actually, in the story. And like we just said, I didn't ever think I'd read a comic that made X-Force 1 look as deep as Sandman. The main takeaway from this, though, is that Liffield thinks that this is what heroes are. Least it inspired the authority, so some good came out of it. Yeah, but the authority was young blood as written by somebody who can write. Yeah. Is that what it was? Could be. Now that I've read this... <laughs> Now that you've read this, it made you think of the authority. Now that I've read this, I'm thinking, oh, thank God for other literature. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What did you think of it? I I didn't. You didn't? (laughs) You couldn't bring yourself to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Youngblood was a sales success. Why? I have no idea. But Advanced Orders topped a million copies, a huge seller for an independent book. However, it was not as successful as the Marvel titles that Liefeld produced. I do find it interesting, you know, in all these biographies, they all mention the X-Files sales figures, but they don't mention Youngbloods. (laughs) They just mention that he was the creator of Youngblood. Reception to Youngblood, however, was uniformly negative. And it was one of the worst reviewed comics in the history of the medium. Liefeld combated this by throwing his scripter Hank Canals under the bus, claiming that it was Canals' fault that Youngblood was a disaster. Right. Let's just double check this, right? <laughs> Liefeld is credited with everything except the script. But in Liefeld's mind, it was the script that let this comic down. The script let this comic down. 
let's be honest though <laughs> even if he wrote the script himself he'd blame the letterer <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, the letterer did cock up twice that <laughs> yeah. we've noticed. After that point, I think I just turned off. I love that his, his, his arrogance. Yeah. In a good, well-drawn comic, you could probably actually follow the story without any dialogue. Hmm. You should be able to follow what's going on. And there have been comics. And there have been comics like that, yeah. But in Liffield's mind, the script... Was what made this bad. Wasn't the script written after he did all the pencils? Yes, after he did everything else. Yeah, this guy came and scripted it. I think he did as good <laughs> a job as he could have been expected to do. I mean, certainly, if we'd have been scripting this, we would have mocked it on every single page. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it may have worked if you'd done that. If, if you dialogued it, it as, as a piss take, yeah. yeah. Like that Doom Force thing that Grant Morrison did. Yeah. If you if you give it to Grant Morrison <laughs> and send you a dialogue this, you may have ended up with a funny comic. <laughs> yeah. Certainly no less incomprehensible. But you know, whatever. Young Blood slowly became the poster boy for Image's problems with timely publishing and managed to clock up only ten issues over a nearly three year period. Which I think is absolutely shocking. I mean I know modelling all those Levi's must have taken up his time. <laughs> But, yeah. Do you think he did them holding copies of Youngblood in the advert? (laughs) Plug. (laughs) Image's next launch would be one of its most successful, and along with Savage Dragon, is one of only two Image Comics launch titles still being published today. Spawn issue one debuted in May of 1992, and was as much Todd McFarlane's baby as Youngblood was Liefeld's. Perhaps even more so, as McFarlane wrote, penciled, and inked the book himself, and clocked up an impressive run on the book. Issue one had sales of 1.7 million copies, about the same as Spider-Man number one. The cover painting is by Ken Stacey over McFarlane's pencils of Spawn, just generally hanging around and posing. It's similar to Spider-Man number one in that it does the job of attracting the reader. The anatomy seems much better than his Spider-Man work, although to be fair, Spawn is covered up by quite a lot of cape, Mm. isn't he? So you can't really tell. It's quite striking in its simplicity. And this would be the only image book I bought at launch, and one of only three image books I had ever bought until Walking Dead came along, I think. Do you like it? I do, actually. Does the job, doesn't it? For all of our complaints of McFarlane, he's really, really good doing something like this on mm. his own thing. Yeah. It, it, it works for what it is. And it's it's certainly... I think it's more anatomically correct than his Spider-Man work, mainly because he's not drawing Spider-Man. I mean, yeah. the fingers are a little bit... You know, maybe he's just very dexterous, I don't know. The big purple bats are a bit... Yeah, why are they there? I know. I don't. I didn't get that. Maybe he's just homaging his Batman work... It's entirely possible, isn't it? In 1987, via a sequence of TV news talking heads, we learned that Al Simmons, a decorated and respected combat veteran, was buried at Arlington Cemetery, and years later, in 1992, a mysterious, colourfully clad creature starts stalking the night. His memories are vague, but he recalls a woman and a Faustian pact that has returned him from death. He has two goals, this spawn of the devil. Find this woman, and find out who framed... Al Simmons. Elsewhere, Detective Sam and Twitch investigate the gruesome murder of gangland overlord Carlo Giamotta. That was your story. Again, I'm not kidding. I'm not being pithy. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much all there was to it. Spawn's intro, once again, owes a huge debt to Frank Miller's Daredevil and or The Dark Knight. 
with a shot of the main character standing on a church whilst lightning strikes in the background. Mm. That is so Miller yeah. that Frank Miller should have been paid for it. I really liked these first few pages. Yeah, I thought I'm, the, the, the panel art, progression in the first The panel progression is excellent. Uh, especially on page two. Much better than the Spider-Man stuff we took the mick out of a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And the art's really quite good. And the colouring's brilliant as well. This is actually quite an impressive package, unlike Die Hard's in the last issue that we covered. Sam and Twitch are two pretty cool cats. (laughs) I like Sam and Twitch a great deal. I don't have a lot of this on a page-by-page basis, do you? No. Um, It's much better than Spider-Man number one. McFarlane has learned to pace his story quite well by this point, and this issue is well paced and constructed. Mm. I thought this was this was quite pleasant. McFarlane doles out the information about Al Simmons in nice bite-sized chunks, giving the reader enough to tantalise, but not too much so, so the reader will stop following the book. And his art is at its abstract best. His people are a lot more attractive than his Spider-Man work, and this is a generally well-constructed issue. It was a solid, enjoyable read. The two pages of TV noise talking heads made me think that Miller should receive a paycheck, and I didn't actually felt that they belonged in this comic. They didn't seem to fit. All told, though, this was quite good. Yeah. Very enjoyable read. Absolutely not, not much wrong with it at all. It's probably the quintessential... 90s comic it's got overwrought captions but they are a huge improvement over the narrative in Spider-Man 1 where the voice shifted seemingly at random between omniscient narrator and Spider-Man it's darker than his Spider-Man work but it's his creator owned baby so he can he can do what he wants with it really can he yeah I quite enjoyed this I had no problem with it at all my problems with it were the dialogue yeah, his dialogue still needs work. His narration was pretty horrible, and it did switch from first to second person. Yeah, I like that they can say bitch, but they couldn't say MF. Yeah. They actually say MF instead of actually saying the word. And I, for the most part, I quite enjoyed this. Um, I think his panel progression, and an awful lot of it, is really good. I could have done without the, the Miller um, TV news things. It just feels too much like a rip-off yeah. at this point. But, you know... I'd have read the next issue of this before I read the next issue of Youngblood, put it that way. And George Perez does a um, Spawn poster, and it looks it looks alright. There was, there was the little countdown thing at the bottom of the pages, which didn't quite... Well, maybe that played out over the, the whole arc. I didn't know what 995 meant, and then earlier on it said 9999. Is it a countdown? Earlier on there's the thing you're going on. Yeah, is it a countdown? I'm assuming so, but it it didn't really work. Yeah, let's see. The opening evokes Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah. Doesn't it? I, I, don't, I didn't know what they were. Maybe they, they came and, and played out much more if you read the whole story, which we didn't. Uh, the two-page spread of Spawn that you have to turn on its side I thought was really good. Mm. He's got big thighs, but they're not inconsistently large thighs. His other one's big as well. Yeah. And there is a poster in the middle of the book, which I thought was quite nice. Mm. All told, this didn't suck. No. Pleasantly surprised by this. I thought it was much better than Spider-Man number one. It was much better than Youngblood number one. But, you know, rectal surgery is better than Youngblood <laughs> number one. So, why was it dedicated to Jack Kirby? Um, because McFarlane, at this point, was equating himself to being like Jack Kirby. Right, is it just the kind of... Yeah, you've been screwed over by the big company. Right. Like, like McFarlane was when he made millions doing Spider-Man. Right. Much more money than, than Jack Kirby ever made. Yeah, but it's, it's the big thing. 
Yeah, it's hard to feel sorry for a millionaire, though, isn't if it? If you think you're hot stuff, the best thing you can do is to... Uh, Pretend you're an underdog. Yeah. Yeah, I see... I, it's, uh, it's like when politicians wheel out celebrities, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you don't know anything about my life. Yeah. And now I'm not voting for you <laughs> just because you've wheeled out Brad Pitt. No, that ain't happening. Um, McFarlane would turn the writing over to others for a few issues, one of which being Dave Sims' issue about creator rights, which is one of the most pretentious comics I have ever read. It was knocked off its perch by Alan Moore's 1963 miniseries, which was god-awful. Another issue by Neil Gaiman ended up causing McFarlane no end of headaches regarding, ironically, the creator ownership of a character. Gaiman co-created Angela for Spawn. McFarlane, despite his firm creator-friendly stance, tried to claim Angela was work for hire and he owned it outright, essentially doing the same thing to Gaiman that Marvel and DC have done to others over the years. Marvel, in a delicious irony, came to Gaiman's aid and helped him fund the court case against McFarlane that Gaiman ultimately won, meaning that Angela is now a Marvel character. I thought the uh, (laughs) weren't announcing who won. I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty clear who won. Yeah, yeah. Angela now appears in Marvel comics. Do you yeah. think she'd be doing that if McFarlane had won? Would she even be in use though? No, probably not. I don't know that uh, he'd do anything with it. The spawning ground is a text page where McFarlane is all, "Oh, woe is me," which I thought was pap of, of the highest order. But the issue itself, pretty damn good. There's a good art book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't think the story was that bad. It's just the dialogue. Yeah. He's there's going for Sam and Twitchy stuff was alright. Yeah. I thought. But you know. There's there's Ponzi dialogue and then there's Ponzi dialogue. <laughs> and this was Ponzi dialogue. <laughs> yeah. That's a good issue though. They were all told that I didn't think that sucked at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I was quite impressed. Wildcats was Jim Lee's image entry launching onto an unsuspecting world in August of 1992 and, like Spawn and Youngblood, clocked up over one million in sales. Lee, of all the image boys, seemed to be the one least likely to think he could write and brought in a co-scriptor from the get-go. He also published Wildcats under his own publishing imprint, Wildstorm Comics, a business move that would see him in good stead many years later. Wildcats is almost an acronym with the CATS portion of the title standing for Covert Action Teams and Lee would link his work together like a mini Marvel Universe. Looking back at these image books from this time it becomes apparent that what Image really wanted to be was Marvel Comics. There's no real unique voice here in the way Vertigo was unique in the medium of American comics at the time. It's simply just more of the same. The cover to issue one is startlingly similar to X-Men 1, with a collection of costumed men and women standing and gurning, some with swords, some with guns. There's the obligatory strong-looking woman, there's the woman with the unfeasibly tight costume riding up in the crotch, there's the wet-her look and someone who has a sword for a finger. The anomaly here is that beyond all of this same old, same old, there are two interesting-looking people on the cover located in the bottom right-hand corner. There's a short guy puffing on a cigar, and his lady friend who is hugging him, they have expressive faces, and actually look like they have genuine stories to tell. Other than that, it's, like I said, more of the same. The no-eyeballed clause that I assume was in the Image Comics contract is in full effect. What did you think of it? It's a Rob Liffield cover, but done by a decent artist. It's a Rob Liffield cover drawn by somebody who does actually have a vague grasp of anatomy and perspective. Yeah. Isn't it? Although, could you not say that a Rob Liffield cover is a crap Jim Lee cover? 
See, I never got that Liffield was a, a Jim Lee wannabe. I think he wanted to be George Perez. Yeah, but... He just was nowhere near that talented. Regardless of who they wanted to be, they were both the same artist. You think? Yeah. Alright, but just Jim Lee had, could pull it off. Yeah. Mike Carlin wants Samuel of Rob Liffield. He's got it, he's just not got it yet. Yeah. But unfortunately he became big before he learned how to draw properly. Mm. So, like, you know, ten years more of working in the trenches and he may have become a good artist. Yeah. But he never had the impetus to change his style, did he? Like McFarlane, Lee writes a text piece, uh, introduction to the work. It's a lot more, ha oh, shucks, down at home than McFarlane's. He doesn't bang on about how evil Marvel was for not paying for his Ferrari. He simply talks about how he got into comics biz and how his best friend Brandon Choi, who he's brought in as co-writer, also broke into comics. As such, Lee comes across as a lot less angry and bitter than McFarlane. And this pretty much feeds into how I see them as creators. McFarlane has always played the victim constantly wittering on about how hard done by he was despite the money and success he achieved Jim Lee just seems generally happy and grateful doesn't he he's always like that yeah would you blame him I think Jim Lee could just be paid in hugs and he'd be happy (laughs) well now he's made all his money (laughs) he's happy to just be paid in hugs Wildcats 1 was called Resurrection Day Void finds herself leaping around in time. In 1980, she finds herself in the Antarctic, tracking an orb of unimaginable power. She fails to acquire it, reappearing in Georgetown, the scene of an explosion. It's been blamed on Libyans, but the international operations team believe it to be the covert action team, and the body of a dwarf was found in the wreckage. Void disappears again, only to reappear in 1990 in a New York City alleyway, where she locates a down-and-out dwarf named Jacob Marlowe. Jacob is attacked by muggers, but manifests a strange power that repels them and stuns him, but his life is saved by Void. Apparently, Jacob was once the Lord Emp, one of the four lords of power, and the Cabal has risen to power again and threaten all humanity. Void has been sent to prepare Jacob for the upcoming war. So far, so Terminator. By 1992, Jacob has risen to a position of power, and to combat the war against the Cabal, he has set up a group of super types. Void reveals she has visions of a man coveting an orb, and that some of these visions culminate in Jacob's death. The team, who all have names like Warblade and Spartan, fight amongst themselves. So far, so Fantastic Four. Elsewhere, the Cabal are meeting in a submarine where Hellspont, the leader, tells his board that they will soon be able to conquer this misbegotten planet. However, he says as he strokes his cat, there is a traitor in the midst. Hellspont's assistant, who looks like Deadpool, kills the traitor. Hellspont's seer, Providence, reveals a woman with the sight they need to track down. So far, so James Bond. Jacob is also informed of the seer by Gnome. In Georgetown, Grifter has to locate Voodoo. It's not terribly clear if this is all part of the same plan or who Grifter is actually working for, but anyway, the Cabal show up to snatch her and Grifter tries to stop them. He is interrupted by the team, never actually called Wildcat, and a roboty-type bad guy snatches Jacob. Electra then shows up, but calling herself Zealot for copyright reasons, and kills the robot thing that has snatched Jacob. Zealot is about to monologue, but the Cabal terrorists blow up the bar. Kabloom. See, that one had a lot going on, mm. didn't it? 
because it's a time travel story, so you can't do a simple time travel story. The story opens by jumping through three different time frames from 1980 to 1992, and then back to 1990. Void appears to be a time jumper, who can also see alternative realities and potential futures, although she cannot tell which is the real outcome. So she's not like Ziggy from Quantum Leap and able to give you alternate histories of things. Once again, an image comic pays tribute to Frank Miller, with a Miller beer can being seen next to a Mazzuccielli cardboard box in the alleyway where uh, where Jacob's asleep. Did you notice that? No. Future site of image comics, there's a sign there. It's on here somewhere. Yeah, there you go. Miller beer, Mazzuccielli candles. By the looks of things. The litter-strewn alleyway Jacob lies in also features a torn sign stating future site of Image Comics and Extreme Studios, and there's a dig at Marvel with a box full of X-Men number one. There you go. Did you notice that? <laughs> oh, yeah. A full box of X-Men number one. Lee is presumably showing a degree of self-awareness here. Yeah. And pointing out that the eight million copy selling boot you thought would pay your kids through college is now garbage. Unless that's what he thinks of his work on X-Men number one. Could be. Could be. Jacob looks like Wolverine, which I'm sure is a coincidence. Do, do you disagree? <laughs> it, it could be. It could be a coincidence. Uh, actually, I thought this opening sequence was pretty cool. And I like that it cuts to two years later, and Lee has Jacob wake up in exactly the same position in an alleyway. Yeah. Um, but then suddenly he gets picked up by a limo, and tidied up while he's in the back of the limo and then he goes and takes control of a large company worth two and a half billion. Oh, that was a clever scene playing with your expectations. Yeah. You're wondering as the time leap meant that he's still in the alleyway, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So that was quite clever. Quite a clever bit of storytelling. And for some reason I really like the shot of him with cucumbers over his eyes. <laughs> I don't know why that amused me. It just did. I liked it. Lee crams a lot of panels onto the page with a great deal for the reader to look at, but he's not skimping on the dialogue either. Mm. There was actually a lot to read in this issue. The newsreader, though, you know, because we get another newsreader footage, because we're nothing if not slavish to the work of Frank Miller, is the same one as in Spawn, and there is a mention of Youngblood in the dialogue. As well as in Spawn? Yeah. So they are trying to set up, they all exist in the same universe Maul being able to change mass is quite cute because it means that Jim Lee can draw him in consistently from panel to panel but it'd be a story point I mean maybe it was a dig at Liffield could be what do you think the, the scene with Hellspawn was straight out of uh, Spectre yeah in Thunderball is he, is he, he's not stroking a cat that was just me being pithy wasn't it he doesn't actually have a cat I just thought it, it would have been funny if he did Lee's action sequences flow a lot more easily and more credibly than Leffield's, and his art is cleaner and easier to read than McFarlane's. It helps that the story here is pretty straightforward and to the point, despite being time travel, which potentially could make it confusing. But Lee and Choi do a good job of setting up the series' premise, as well as telling a decent first-issue story. Compared to the Liefeld and even the McFarlane issue, this was the densest of the three in terms of reading material, but there's nothing new here. There's no Warren Ellis-style deconstruction of the genre, no Alan Moneyalism, or a Mark Miller snark. It's just simple, old-fashioned superheroics, and there's nothing wrong with that. I loved the cyclical nature of the story, where we see the bar destroyed at the beginning without having any context as to what we're seeing. And then when we get to the end of the issue, 
we make the connection that the bar we saw at the beginning was the bar that just blown up and the body of the dwarf they found was Jacob. I liked that. I thought that was quite clever. There's still far too many characters introduced with little to no reason to like them. And only Jacob has any real personality. I do like Grifter, though. Did you? Well, what did he do in this issue? Nothing. I just like Grifter. Oh, right. Okay. Do you like him because of what he became, ultimately? Yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, it was adequate, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> That's high praise, isn't it? <laughs> it was adequate. His drawing of Electra's terrible. That's to be said. There's no way in hell she could wear that outfit. Oh, sorry. She's not Electra. She has a different name for copyright <laughs> reasons. Zealot is what she's called. What did you think of Wildcats, number one? I didn't like it. Did you not? And Why not? This was the one I expected to like because it's Jim Lee. So I kind of forced And you myself liked X-Men 1? Yeah, and I, I forced myself to like it because it's Jim Lee, but there's too many characters I just don't care about. And it kind of reads as though Lee doesn't either. Uh, the stereotypical yeah. image characters of they the time. And you, I just don't care about them. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you'd read it before Youngblood number one, yeah. you'd have had a better opinion. It is cut from the same cloth yeah. as Youngblood. I just felt this was a much better put-together package. It felt like some thought had gone into the script here. Yeah. Lee was at least giving you something to read amidst the pretty... I mean, I didn't think this was his art at its best. I thought McFarlane was much better yeah. than either one of them this week in terms of art. It's just, it felt like... A Rob Liffield story done right. And yeah. <laughs> it was the same when we first covered them, and Jim Lee's X Men felt like a Rob Liffield story done right. Yeah, done with a proper writer. In this era, Jim Lee can't escape Rob Liffield for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Alright, okay, fair enough. See, I'd have thought you'd like that one, but. Alright. The Image Comics that publish these books is a vastly different to the Image Comics of today. Rob Laffield was fired from Image for allegedly siphoning funds and exploiting Image staff as promotional and production work for Maximum Press, his own comics imprint. Didn't he start Image? Yeah. Yeah, he was one of the founders. Laffield issued a press release stating he was resigning his position at Image and leaving the group. Just minutes before the remaining Image partners issued a press release stating that they'd fired Liffield. Liffield's resignation came only minutes before a meeting that would have forced him out anyway. So I think he was just saving face. He still remains a controversial figure in the comics industry, but presumably consoles himself at night by bathing in his piles of money. And jeans. <laughs> and his Levi's, of which he has plenty. Todd McFarlane is still with Image, and Spawn is still running, having clocked up nearly 250 issues at this point, although it's no longer the sales juggernaut it once was. McFarlane isn't as hands-on with Spawn nowadays, having parlayed his money into other business enterprises, including McFarlane Toys, which makes very detailed figurines aimed at the collector's market, and they're based on Spawn characters as well as famous musicians and sports performers. While it's not as controversial as he once was, McFarlane still prefers to go out fighting and has been the subject of a few high-profile legal cases. He still attends conventions and meets his fans. Jim Lee quit Image and sold his Wildstorm comics imprint to DC in 1998, not wanting to be involved in the business side of comics anymore. He returned to drawing with successful runs on Batman and Superman. In 2010, he was named a co-publisher at DC and was one of the main architects behind DC's New 52 initiative. 
The Image Boys weren't single-handedly responsible for the collapse of the comics industry in the 90s. There was a large confluence of events that contributed. But they were one of the major reasons, and I don't think they've ever really took the rap for it. With the exception of McFarlane and Eric Larson, their inability to deliver good comics on a regular schedule led to many retailers being put out of business and many fans losing interest. They may have got rid of the speculators that inadvertently made them rich, but they drove away a few good readers as well with their ridiculous cover gimmicks, misschedules and unprofessional attitude. Very quickly the readers realised the Emperor had no clothes. Sadly, the damage was done. Comics have never really recovered from the excesses of the 90s, a situation that largely has little to do with the comics produced in the 90s themselves, but with petty behind-the-scenes events and creators producing more and more product. As the 90s settled down, the survivors made a decent stab of returning comics to being the little art form that could, and many an acclaimed project emerged from the dying embers of the industry. Kingdom Come and Marvel's Heroes Return, Marvel Knights, Batman, No Man's Land, Justice League, and the emergence of Dark Horse comics saw that whilst they no longer boasted the numbers they once had, there was still gold to be mined in comic storytelling. Elements of the 90s are still with us, both good and bad, but as the decade drew to a close it was clear that the nearly bankrupt Marvel comics and the showing its age DC needed something that would give them a shot in the arm as they entered the 21st century. That's a story for another show, I think. We may do that one day. Image Comics itself has changed. It is now at the forefront of creator-owned comics, with numerous highly acclaimed titles, and is publishing some of the most eclectic and diverse books currently on the market. Robert Kirkman was elected to the board of Image Comics, the first addition to the roster since they launched, and his series The Walking Dead has been one of the biggest success stories in recent years. In many ways, Image has stopped wanting to be Marvel and finally forged its own identity. As we'll see next week when we cover one of Image Comics' current series and one of its best. But I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. Finally tonight, a section I have blatantly ripped off of Tom Panarisi's excellent podcast, Pop Culture Affidavit, where he and guest Mike Bailey pitched their favourite comics from 1994 as they read them. I have asked Tom if he's okay with us doing this, so I'm going to give him full credit, and you should totally go and check out Pop Culture Affidavit, because it's now part of the Two True Freaks Network. We are the Rupert Murdoch of podcasting networks. We buy everything. (laughs) Gobble them up into one conglomerate. The last bit I thought was quite crucial, the reading as they read them thing. I thought that was quite interesting. They couldn't include comics that they came to after the fact but comics they actually read in the decade. That being said, I am going to give a shout-out to a series I didn't read as it came out, but discovered in trades. Chuck Dixon and Scott McDaniels run Nightwing. High-octane, kinetic, action-adventure, superhero slugfests with character and depth. This series, more than any other, solidified my appreciation of former boy wonder Dick Grayson. But it's outside of the top five because it doesn't fit the criteria. Are you going to join in with this? I can't. Yeah, you can have after the fact. Okay. Because you were only born in 1995. Yeah. So. All right. So, the top five best 90s comics as per me. Coming in at number five, Star Wars Dark Empire. This is an unusual one. It's not that I think Dark Empire is any good. I don't. But it was just so exciting to have Star Wars back in comics form. Originally a Marvel epic book, various behind-the-scenes shenanigans led to a delay in publication that ultimately saw the series land at Dark Horse Comics. 
It's not the best introduction to Star Wars, the art, whilst good isn't helped by the colouring, but it does give a decent follow-up to Return of the Jedi. And there is a lot of background on the history of the Jedi in the text pages, which I lapped up more than the actual story. Isn't that the one that brought back Boba Fett? Yes. Well, no, Boba Fett was brought back in an issue of Marvel Star Wars, but he ended up back in the Sarlacc pit at the end of it. Jawas of Doom. But this one brought Boba back permanently, I think. I remember in Dark Empire 2. It was one of them. Yeah. It was one of those. I remember it, the one being where Luke joins the dark side, but it was all an elaborate ruse. It was all an elaborate ruse, (laughs) yes. It also put Dark Horse comics on the map. Yeah. Without Star Wars, I don't think Dark Horse would be what they are today. That's all they were, really. Star Wars, Buffy and... Well, Star Wars Predator and Aliens, initially. Yeah. And now Buffy's keeping them afloat, I think, now that they've lost Star Wars. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Dark Horse. I hope they don't go under. Number four, Marvels. Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross's love letter to 60s and 70s Marvel comics is one of the finest miniseries ever published and a lovely volume to give to people who've come to Marvel via the movies. Well-researched without being continuity poor, lovingly rendered... Reading this made me fall in love with the Marvel comics of my youth again, as well as putting Busiek on the map as a writer of immense skill. It also earmarked Alex Ross as one to watch. You ever read Marvels? Yes. Did you like it? Yes. Would it be one of your fives? It wouldn't. Would it not? No. What would yours be? Uh, as a flip side to Marvel's yeah. Kingdom Come. Would you put Kingdom Come in? Yeah. I thought you'd go and for Kingdom Come. And it took me so many rereads to get into to it. To actually appreciate it. Yeah. But once you did... It yeah. just clicked. You've got the absolute of that. I have, signed by Mark Wade. Well, you just need it signed by Alex Ross now. Yeah. That'll be awesome. Number three, Hitman. Garth Ennis and John McRae's story of a mildly superpowered Hitman, Tommy Monaghan, was probably the only successful series to spin out of DC's Bloodlines crossover. Hitman was an interesting book. Stripped of the Vertigo imprint, Ennis was forced to avoid many of his usual tricks, and as such, Hitman made him more creative. The humour was still black, but not as over the top. The dialogue was still funny, but not as peppered with four-letter words. The violence still present, but less gross, and Ennis's core themes of friendship and loyalty still resonated, perhaps more so than any of his other books. Notable for being one of the few mainstream DC comics to actually end, Hitman received a poignant send-off that, thankfully, has yet to be pissed upon by later creators. You agree with Hitman? It wouldn't be my top five. Would it not? No. Well, you've only said one so far. Kingdom Come, what's your others? Uh, another one of my top five. Mm-hmm. Transmetropolitan. Transmet. Yeah. So there's five and four. Yeah. What's three? Three? Because I've just done number three. Sandman. You reckon? Yeah. Okay. These aren't in an actual order. No, no, that's all right. That's okay. That's fair enough. I mean, Sandman technically started in 1988, but I'll let you have it. Because it is a 90s. I'm already breaking the rules yeah, of this. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Number two, Untold Tales of Spider-Man. The cream of the Spider-Man titles during the tumultuous 90s when the Clone Saga ran amok. This tender love letter to the Stanley Steve Ditko era of Spider-Man history was sublime. Dodging between the raindrops of the early days of continuity is easier said than done. Witness Dan Slott's recent failed attempt learning to crawl, but Busiek handled it masterfully, providing readers who could with enough clues as to the positioning of the events, and those that didn't with a solid and, more importantly, cheap and self-contained Spider-Man book to read for those that felt bogged down by the normal comics. Pat Olaf's art beautifully evoked Ditko without being shameless, and it was a much underrated and unappreciated comic. Sadly, despite loud complaints about the main books, poor sales meant that Roger Stern's planned run taking place during Peter's college days was aborted, but it was fun while it lasted. 
What's your other one? I won't say number two because you're not doing an hard, are you? Uh, the Invisibles. Okay. You're all vertigo, aren't you? It's not that, but I'm also picking stories. Mm. So Hellblazer would have been one of them, but I've only read Garth Ennis's one. Have you? I thought you'd read all of Hellblazer. We've got Hellblazer trades in the college library. Yeah, well, mm. I've read I read the most of it, but the only one I really enjoyed that would have been on my list was Garth Ennis. Right. So I can't say all of Hellblazer, because I've not... Well, you can say that particular arc. Yeah. If you want to. Garth Ennis is running Hellblazer. Mm. All right, fair enough. Before we do number one, notable mentions to the Batman Adventures, which I thought was fantastic. Batman No Man's Land, which I came to afterwards, so I can't count. Yeah. And Superman Adventures, which was also pretty damn good, mm-hmm. both based on the animated series. But number one, it's not really going to be a surprise, is it? <laughs> Preacher. Profane, borderline blasphemous, violent, gross, touching, heartfelt, blackly comic, relatable, irreverent, exquisite. Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon's Preacher kept me reading comics in the 90s. Replete with Western iconography, themes of love, loss, betrayal and loyalty, Preacher is all of these things and more. If you weren't there at the time, its impact may be a tad diluted, but its legacy is assured. When other Vertigo books were pretentious poetry readings, Preacher blew the bloody doors off and it did it with wit and style. You've got to be one of the good guys, kid, because there's way too many of the bad. What's your number one? It's the same. Is it? Yeah. So we, we, we come together yeah. at the very end. It's that last issue. Every, Is it? Every time. Is that one that gets you? Garth Ennis at his A-game has not done a last issue that hasn't made me tear up. Garth Ennis on his A-game is pound for pound probably one of the best writers currently working. Yeah. My only complaint with him is he does go for the cheap humour a lot. Yeah. And he does that in Preacher... But it kind of works in Preacher, because by and large it was the first time he'd done it, yeah. Hellblazer aside. And you just, there was something about Preacher that felt personal to him. Yeah, so they could be very childish, because the characters were representations of yourself. Yeah. And you're childish. Yeah. And I don't think there's a comic that more sums up what we were like in the 90s. Mm. That's what we were like, because we were 20-something and we, we were invincible. Yeah. And he took the piss out of us in that comic, <laughs> us Kurt Cobain fans. Yeah. He laid into us in certain <laughs> places, didn't he? Well, that's fair enough. You don't read Garth Ennis and not expect to have the piss taken out of you at some point. Mm-hmm. And I just love that phrase. I do think that's that's brilliant. You've got to be one of the good guys. Yeah. Because there's way too many of the bad. It's, it's full of that, though. It is full of those little... Just uh, the last two pages. What should we do now? Hell, girl, can't you tell? <laughs> I think we should just cover Preacher All the next it. 40 weeks. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right, yeah. <laughs> you would be down with that, wouldn't you? It's an excuse to read it again. It is. It hasn't yeah. been long enough to give me an excuse to read it again. Maybe for the next year, we should just do the Hitman Preacher podcast. Okay. And we do Hitman and Preacher. An issue a week. We wouldn't get them all done before you go. Two issues a week. We'd have to do two or three, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's not going to happen, probably. <laughs> Shame, really. Anyway, uh, special thanks this week to Dr. Bill Robinson, who came through for me in a pinch. And next time on an all-new episode of Hit Kids Comics, we will be looking uh, at a current-day image book to counterpoint what we looked at today. Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting's Velvet. We hope you'll join us. See you next week. Bye-bye. Good luck.
is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at 2TrueFreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at HeyKidsComics at VirginMedia.com We can also be friended on Facebook by using HeyKids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of HeyKidsComics. Comics.